Close enough. Close enough. That's good. Okay. So today we're going to learn about a very complicated fellow. Hamanic thrills and Hamanic anger, his joys and his wraths. The postmortem of the great feast that had only two guests at it. Just Haman and the king. Chapter 5, verse 9. Vayetze Haman bayemahu. Haman left on that day. Sameach v'toivlev. Happy and good-hearted. Ucherais Haman es Mordechai b'sha'ar ha-melech. When Haman sees Mordechai sitting there in the king's gates, so to speak. V'leikam, he doesn't rise. V'leiza, he doesn't move. Mimenu, before him. V'yimolei Haman al Mordechai chayma. Haman is filled with wrath and anger directed towards Mordechai. Now Rashi doesn't say anything on this pasuk. It's a, it's a fairly straightforward verse. It is what it is. He, he was at the meal. He had a good time. He left the meal. He was in a good mood. Why shouldn't he have been in a good mood? He ate well. He was, he was dined, wined and dined. And now he's heading home. So let's start off from the beginning. Vayetze Haman Bayoim Hahu. Haman leaves on that day. What's the emphasis on the Bayoim Hahu? So the Mepharshim tell us that Haman was a man who was never satisfied. He was a ruthless person filled with ambition. And he was just climbing the corporate ladder, stepping over as many dead bodies as he could. He was not really a popular fellow. Everybody was terrified of him. And Haman never reached any kind of happiness. He was actually a miserable person inside. And finally, on this day, he was finally happy for the first time in his life. Everything went well for him. Everything went well. He had everything he wanted. He had untold money. He had a family, a huge family, many children. He had a wife who was loyal to him. And finally, the king had been alone with him. Esther had chosen him over everybody else. This was a feast you could have had all the ministers, all the cabinet could have been there. They weren't there. It was only he and, 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 and Haman, and, and the king. And Haman finally feels he made it. That's it, he made it. He's finally happy. And how long did his happiness last? About 20 minutes. <laughs> that day, finally he's happy. By Yetzeh Haman, by Yehimahu, on that day he went out, finally satisfied, finally joyous. And as soon as he sees Mordechai, Mordechai doesn't move, he's filled with anger. So this gives you a little bit of an insight into the complexities of this monster of a man. Now, the emphasis on, on, on the description of Haman's joy, that it says that Haman was sameach v'toivlev. He was happy and also good-hearted. So what's, the, what's, the, what's, the, what's both? What's the sameach and what's the, what's the toivlev? So... There are many interpretations on this. Let me share with you the words of... I'll start off with the Vilna Gon. Very interestingly, it says like this. He says, Sameach means a person's happy. He's satisfied. And Toivlev means he has no fear. He has no anxieties. So he's good-hearted. 
says, till now, Haman was nervous that his decree would be undone. Why? Because he knows that Mordechai has a relationship with Esther. He never quite figured it out, but Mordechai had some kind of connection to the queen. So he, he had launched his, his plan of genocide. He sent out the letters, but he was nervous. He was anxious. He wasn't sure if he's going to be successful. In fact, the Mepharshim say that when Haman was first called to the party, he went there with great anxiety. He expected to be confronted by Esther in front of the king. So he wasn't happy about this. He was very nervous going into the party. And that's why we say, On that day when he left the party, he was in a good mood. He came into the party feeling very anxious. What, 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 what kind of plot is Esther going to launch against him? Why would Esther bring him alone to the party? She thought for sure this was going to be an ambush. And, and he went under duress. But then, on that day when he left, he's all happy. And that's why the Vilnagorn says, he has no longer any fear of the relationship between Mordechai and Esther because after all, the king wasn't challenged. He wasn't challenged. The queen wined them and dined them, treated them nicely. Everything is great. It was all good. It all worked out. All of his fears were to naught. The, the Ma'amloyas um, adds that Sameach, he was happy for what happened today. But Tevlev, he was looking forward, anticipating tomorrow. Because he went in with anxiety. Now, not only he was happy how things went, but he could be anxious about tomorrow. It went well today. Maybe tomorrow something's going to happen. He didn't even think of that anymore. So Esther's plan had worked exactly as she had choreographed it. She would bring him in. He would lose all his anxiety, lose all his inhibition, lose all his fears, and then he would be most susceptible. He reasoned, it must be that Esther wants something something big. And she, the only way she can get this is to make sure that Haman's on board too. And he thought to himself, look at that. Haman is equal to the king. His wife can't even ask him for something unless I'm there to rubber stamp it. So now he's Haman Almighty. He's the most powerful man. Even the queen doesn't have the power to do without him. He's indispensable. And so at this point, all of his anxiety is gone. All of his fears are gone. And he feels total confidence, or shall we say, overconfidence. For a person should never be too overconfident. And this was what was Haman's greatest mistake, his overconfidence here that caused him not to watch his back, so to speak. And he, he proceeds with, with only with fury. And so Haman is, is uh, at, at this point feeling very, very high and mighty, very, very satisfied with himself, well, knowing... Uh, not for long. It's only That's what Amleya says. Haman was happy for one day in his life. One day. That's it. This was a one-day happy man, and that. And then he saw Mordechai, and then he got angry, and the next day he was hanging. He was swinging the next day. So basically, here's a guy who spent his whole life trying to achieve his ambitions and had one day of happiness. It's an interesting thought. Spend your whole life pursuing, huh? The next day, yes. he's called to a party. That's that night. This is all happening right now. <laughs> right? There's a machlik. It was the first day of Pesach, second day of Pesach. Everything happens very, very quickly now. Before it can change. Before it can change, yeah, correct. That was Esther's plan. So, so therefore, there, 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 was, there was always a little bit of anxiety, and the anxiety was on behalf of Mordechai. Maybe Mordechai has some power. 
And that's why the interesting juxtaposition happens. Haman leaves the party. He leaves the party feeling with no anxiety, no longer being in fear of Mordechai being able to undo the plan. And then what does he see? Mordechai. And that infuriates him. And not only this, the Mepharshim point out that Mordechai earlier was wearing sackcloth and ashes. Clearly he had taken off the sackcloth and ashes. This is after three days of fasting. So Mordechai fasted for three days. The three days had ended and Mordechai had returned to his place in the palace wearing his normal finery. You're not allowed to come into the palace compound, as you may remember, wearing sackcloth and ashes. You have to dress appropriately. It's like these, you know, the restaurant says you have to wear a tie, a necktie to come in or something like that. You can't come in with flip-flops. So you weren't allowed to go in, in inappropriately dressed. That was, that was the law of the land. And there's Mordechai, dressed resplendently, handsomely, and he's sitting there. Like, like what happened here? And Haman reasoned, maybe till now he could have been happy. He was relying on Esther. But now clearly Esther loves me more than him. She thinks I'm greater than Mordechai. If it would be a unique party and she would invite Haman and Mordechai, maybe that was part of his fears. You have to show up at a party and look at Mordechai's face and be nauseated by Mordechai's presence. No, Mordechai's not there. And then he comes out and he sees him and he's so confident. Vele come, he doesn't get up. Vele zah, he's not even nervous. Usually you're, you're afraid of somebody. It's a wild dog, you stand up. You don't want to be caught off guard. Mordechai doesn't have a care in the world. He's relaxed. Haman walks by, it's as if he doesn't exist. So this drives Haman crazy. And he's filled with fury. And because he's filled with this kind of fury, he decides to himself, now is the time to take action. Now, interesting, interestingly enough, the idea of toiv lev also could be linked to the concept of satisfaction. So we have, for example, the idea of shalom, toiv lev is also the idea of shalom v'shalva. A person could be absolutely at peace, like it says in the Book of Kings. So Haman was finally satisfied. He was never satisfied in his life. This is what it says, Rishoyim, and never satisfied. Esau, it says, who was the ancestor of Haman, he said, Yeshli Rav, I have a lot. Yaakov Avinu said, Yeshli Kol, I have everything. So Haman, Rashi tell, Esau, Rashi tells us, was never satisfied. Well, he said, I have a lot. I need lots more. He, whatever he had, he wanted more. Yaakov said, I have all. I have kol. I have everything. I don't need anything else. Yaakov was satisfied. And of course, this is how a Jew is supposed to behave when it comes to material things. Ezehu Ashir, who is the wealthy person? The Mishnah says, Asameh Bechelkoik. And, 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 and Yaakov is the tzaddik. He's Asameh Bechelkoik. And Yaakov's children, Asameh Bechelkoik. A Russia, never happy. Never satisfied. Of course, when it comes to matters of the spirit, it's supposed to be exactly the opposite. We should never be satisfied. Satisfaction is the greatest inhibitor of spiritual growth. Because I'm satisfied. I'm davening well. I'm learning enough. I do plenty of tzedakah. I'm not, I don't want to do any more. That's, that's no good. Because in Yiddishkeit, you're supposed to grow. We go from strength to strength. But Haman wasn't interested in the spirit. He was only interested in the material reality. And so he was never satisfied before. He couldn't find satisfaction. It was never good enough for him. And finally, he's toiv leif. He finally satisfied. He couldn't expect to become the king. But he's like as indispensable and second in command as a human being could possibly reach during the course of his lifetime. His career path has reached its apex, its zenith. Now, David Feinstein points out that usually happiness makes people more tolerant. You're happy, you have everything you need. Who cares about everybody? Like, who cares? Not Haman. <laughs> he was happy. And what happens because of his happiness? 
He can't stand the fact. It ate up his kishkas that Mordechai was sitting there comfortably without a care or worry in the world. This bothered him more than anything. And his whole joy, his whole satisfaction like dissolved in a moment when he saw Mordechai sitting there. Now this also talks to us about, uh, about, about the, 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 the depraved nature of who Haman was. Gives us not only insight into his hatred for Jews, but just in general, a depraved kind of individual. What, what is this you call a... a, a uh, they have these composite sketches, of a sketch of a person. This is the profile sketch of Haman, a man who was never satisfied. A man, you say in Hebrew, there's an expression, lo mefager. But really, it's a Yiddish word. Which is a Yiddish word. Can't stand that somebody else should have. Haman was a person. It wasn't enough that he had. He should have and nobody else should have. He should be power. But nobody else should have any kind of... Forget power. They shouldn't even be happy. Everybody should walk around terrified of him, quaking in their boots because Haman has arrived. So this gives us an appreciation of, of where Haman is, where he's going. Just to uh, further develop that, the idea of the zomi menu, the the Vilna uh, Goran says the thing that bothered him more than anything was as if he didn't exist. That's a lekom. He didn't get up. Earlier he said he didn't bow. Okay, now it's lekom. He doesn't even get up. Loiza. He doesn't even move. He's moving here. Hamad doesn't exist, which gives us a little bit of a composite of Mordechai. His unbelievable faith in Hashem. He's so rock solid. The Heinrich Himmler is walking by. Hitler, Yomachshma, is walking by. The Jew doesn't even pay attention. Abarachai was so certain that Hashem would deliver them, didn't even care, didn't even look at it. The Malbim, he says that Haman, when he first, when he first saw Mordechai this way, so, and he saw that he had absolutely no fear, no, 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 no concern in the world, he, he had to almost double-check himself. He said, one second. I went to this meal and I was afraid I was going to get, Esther's going to confront me. I went to the meal, Esther didn't confront me. One second. If Esther didn't confront me, that means she's on my side, not on his side. How in heaven is this guy so calm? So it was, it was precisely because of the meal and because it was Sameach Vatayv Leif and because everything worked out exactly as he had not expected it to work out. And then he sees Mordechai, Mordechai is calm. He says, how could this guy be calm? How could, he, how, how could he not react? How could he not be afraid of me? What's Haman's first instinct? Well, we, don't, we know what his first instinct is. We know he's filled with fury. How's he going to react? By the way, huh? Oh, Vayisapak. The next Pasuk. Vayisapak. He restrains himself. He holds himself. Vayoveh Beise comes to his home. Vayishlach, he sends for Vayoveh, and they bring as Oyavav, his beloved ones. Vezeresh Ishtai and his wife Zeresh. So this is a pasuk that reveals as much as it conceals. So we have to ask ourselves the obvious question. But Yisapak, Haman restrained. He restrained what? What did he restrain? He was filled with fury. That, what, that happened already. What does it mean? Right. So, so um, the, the Mamle is, puts it interesting in, in Hebrew, but uh, maybe you, you could say people, people put this into a bumper sticker. He said, he says there are people who when they get angry, they, the, the foolish person expresses his anger in words. The wise person channels his anger in action. This is the origin of the bumper sticker and t-shirt. I don't get mad. I get even. <laughs> I'm going 
I will find a way to deal with this. Haman says, I'm going to deal with this once and for all. This is going to be dealt with. I'm going to get Mordechai. We're going to knock him down. But he knows right away the Yisapak has to restrain himself. He's got to go, he's got to go forward carefully. Now, Rashi doesn't comment on, on, the, on, Pasuk, on Pasuk Tes, but he does comment on Pasuk Yud. And he says, Vayisapak means nishazek lamed al He restrained himself. He pulled himself together to rein in his anger, not to be carried away with his anger. The nature of anger is a powerful emotion that co-opts a person. And then a person is acting out of anger, mindlessly, thoughtlessly, and not what's in their own best interest. Hamad didn't want to do this. He didn't want to act out of anger. He didn't want to respond emotionally. He didn't want to lose control. I didn't want to be in control. So he has to hold his anger, restrain himself. And Rashi adds something very interesting. This is not just about Haman thinking that you know, I have to be in control. You have to be in control, so lash out. Get rid of him. He was still a little bit afraid. He had a tiny bit of anxiety left. A tiny little bit of anxiety. And maybe that's why Rashi doesn't go the path of the Lonely God. It says he was perfectly anxiety-free. Still a little anxiety. Who's he afraid of? The king. What's Mardachai? A loyal servant of the king. So when you're talking about the whole Jewish people being in the crosshairs, annihilating the Jewish people, okay, Mardachai happens to be a Jew. I, I didn't start up with one of the ministers. But Mardachai here carries the name of the king. He's officially a parliamentarian. His power is the power of the king. Without the king, he's nothing. So if you can't just go and execute a fellow officer, when ultimately what makes him unique is that he's a member of Yeshua B'Shad HaMelech. He sits in the king's parliament. So he's nervous now. He, he says, I've got I to think about this carefully. Can't just act. The the Balbum uh, suggests that his first instinct was to run right back to the king and to tell the king, "Let's kill him," right away, first 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 and foremost, without doing anything else. Balbum says, "Allah alibay lashuv alamelech lahalshin." Go to the king and slander Mordechai lahamisay. But then he said, "No, no, I got to calm myself down. I got to think this through carefully. That might not be the smartest thing to do." So Rashi tells us on a simple level, he's afraid. Haman still has some anxiety left. He was sameach v'tayv He was satisfied, not anxiety-free. Seemed like Rashi would not agree with the Vilna Not anxiety-free, satisfied. Still, still playing his cards carefully. Haman is still the ultimate politician, Machiavellian. Everything has to be carefully weighed, carefully measured. Think about the consequences. Don't act out of anger. So what does Haman do? He restrains himself and he comes home. Comes home. He's got to be home first. And then after he comes home, then he brings the people who love him, and Zeresh his wife. It's like a backwards Pasuk. Usually, if he comes home, who should be home? Zeresh. So if he comes home and Zeresh is not there, why isn't Zeresh there? And at first he calls for Oyavav, the ones who love him, and only then he calls for Zeresh. Why wouldn't he call for Zeresh right away? And then, another question you could ask. Why did he call for the people who love him? This is not about love. This is about, this is about tactics. This is about strategy. You should call Chachamav. You should call the smart people. Call the advisors. Why is he calling, why is he calling the loving, the, the people who love him? Because so, so, so something, something is, huh? Because Mordechai doesn't. So doesn't love him? No, no there's, there's, some, there's, there's something going on here. If we, if we say that Haman just behaved emotionally, well, that would make sense. He behaved emotionally. He called the people who loved him because he was emotionally driven. But the Pasuk begins with the word, Vayis Apak. Vayis Apak means 
he controlled himself. So if it's Vayisapa, come on. If he's in control, if he restrains his anger, if he doesn't act emotionally, so then why did he call Vayavil Beisik? He'd come to his house. He's calming, he's controlling himself. And then Vayishtach Vayavil. He calls for and they come. They bring. So the first thing is, the Ma'am quotes the different Mepharshim and he suggests, this is uh, the Bavrom of Germaizo or he seems to see it in the Targum, he seems to suggest that from this we see something about, about the nature of Zeresh. That he wants to ask Zeresh's opinion because Zeresh was an extremely cruel and wicked person. And he wanted her ugliness. He wanted that wickedness. He knew with her there'll be absent. Somebody else might tell him, Haman, it's not worth it. Don't hate so much. Life's too short. Focus on the good things you have. But you knew Haman was a miserable person like him. His was his soul, his twin, his soulmate. So he knew she would understand his hatred, his anger. She, she wouldn't d- dissuade him. She would just help him get there, but she wouldn't dissuade him. So he says, I've got to speak to Zeresh over here. This is, this is where. And that's why she called him at Oyhavav, because Haman knew very well that what he was doing now was a little inappropriate. You're such a powerful man. Do you really care if one Jew doesn't stand up for you? It's almost like ridiculous. You're bigger than this. Move on. But people who love him, they would understand him. They would understand how his feathers were ruffled, how his ego was undermined, how his sense of self-confidence, his sense of satisfaction was taken away. They would understand him. So he needs people who love him because he's, he wants to find a smart way to do this, but he doesn't want to do what's necessarily the smartest thing. The smartest thing would be ignore it. Who cares? Who cares? What, what does it take away from you? That's the smartest thing to do. Pick fights that you need to pick. Why pick unnecessary fights? Haman doesn't want to back down from this fight. But he's got to do it smart. So therefore he comes home first and he sends for his wife who he knows is Marshaz Gedela, an extremely wicked person. Now, huh? Mirshat. Mirshat, correct. <laughs> so the, the, um, the question is, why wasn't she home? So the, the Yismach Lev says like this. He says, Zeresh was a socialite. She really had her own life. She didn't care that much about Haman. She was never home. She was doing her thing. She wasn't there to support her husband. Her husband needed it. Call me when you need me. Call me if you need something. So really, they were, they were both selfless people. Lived their own lives. She, he called the people who loved him and his wife. How much love between them? I'm not sure how much love. They have this great affectionate marriage. Monster and Mr. Monster and Mrs. Monster. Very, very selfish, mean, capricious people, both of them. But nonetheless, he still trusts. She was still ultimately loyal. As if he called her, she'd be there for him. So he called Ayavav, called the ones who love him. And then she calls, some, some maintain that uh, Haman lived a royal kind of lifestyle. And in a royal lifestyle, the, you know, Esther was living separate from the king. She lived in Beisan Nashim. She lived in this royal palace for the queens, for the queen, or the harem. And then Achashverosh lived by himself. And he would allow him to enter her presence. So same thing, Haman fancied himself like a, you know, a monarch of sorts. He built a compound for Zeresh. You live in your house, people. He had to have his own area. You'll come with my permission. So he comes home to his private domain and he sends for his wife. He sends for his beloved people. Now you can come. And now I would like to speak to you. We're gonna, we, have, we, have, we have some stuff to deal with. Now, without a question, Zeresh was a smart lady. Very shrewd. Very, very, very insightful. She's the smartest person in all of Shushan. Doubtful. 
Well, the, the Haman didn't have anybody smarter. The Medrash says that he had 365 special advisors. And each advisor was called to marshal every ounce of wherewithal one day a year. Every day Haman was a, a, by somebody else. So somebody spent the rest of his days researching, educating himself, learning about everything in the world. And then there was one day Haman would call upon one day a year. Sounds a little over the top, but that's... that's so he had this private staff of 365 people. He probably took the smartest people. The people who were wisest, he built a machine, an organization. It was the Haman organization. How are we going to get Haman to the top? And he had all these smart people that were working for him. And yet, for this, he needs Oyhavov. He needs his wife. He needs the people who love him, which we're going to find that is his children. Why is this? So the thing is like this. Everybody needs advice. Why do we need advice? We, we need advice because we are all subjective. We're all partial. And our partiality clouds clarity because we have a subjective thing. We don't really, none of us see ourselves in, in the true light. So the question that becomes, how can you get a picture which is accurate? And what's the answer? From others. But others have their subjective issues. All of Haman's people were terrified of him. They didn't really love him. They lived in mortal fear of him. You crossed Haman, you were dead. So Haman marshaled their wisdom, their insight, but at the end of the day, did they really care about him? Not really. Haman needs somebody who really cares about him, but is not him. Because he says, maybe I'm just getting carried away. Maybe I don't have clarity. The only one that I could find get the truest picture from is people who love me, but are not me. And that's why he sends for Zeresh. That's why he sends for his sons. Maybe not the smartest, but loyal. Still loyal. They care about me. They have my best interest at heart. And because they have my best interest at heart, they will be able to give me good advice. And Zeresh did give some very good advice. The Medrash says that Zeresh said to Haman, clearly she wasn't so plugged in. She didn't, I don't know if it's such an anti-Semite, but she said, tell me, what's, what's the background of this guy, Mordechai, who you hate? Is he a Jew? So Haman said, yeah, how'd you guess? He is a Jew. So Zeresh said, um, if he's a Jew, we have to find a way to overcome the Jewish protection because they seem to have the God on their side. So he said, let's take a look at history, she said, and see every situation that a Jew has been in and been saved from, and let's avoid those situations. So she said, okay, um, we have the story of Hananiah, Mishal, Vazariah, we were they thrown into? A fiery furnace. This is only three generations ago. Back in Bible, what happened to them? They were saved. She said, auto defe, electric chair, it's not going to work. That already, they tried that, God, God took care of that. He says, okay, what's the next thing we could try? So you throw them into a, a den of wild animals. This was a, a favorite in the ancient world. You starve these animals, wild animals, and then you would feed them a person. The person would be ripped to shreds in no time. He said, ah, that's not going to work, because Daniel was thrown into Goiv Haroyas. That's not going to work. He said, throw them in prison. Throw the keys away. So they tried that with Joseph already. Potiphar threw him in prison and ended up becoming the viceroy. Not a good idea. So she said, well, what if we exile them? What if we send them into some Eretz Gezeira, as it's called, some distant wilderness? Well, the, the whole Jewish people survived in a wilderness for 40, 40 years. It's not going to work. Wilderness is not going to do him in. So how about we maim him? How about we mutilate him so he's not effective anymore? Zara said, you know, Samson, they gouge his eyes out, and he ended up killing them all anyway. So that's the, mutilating him is not going to be good, and he'll still, as long as he's alive, he'll still have power. So Zeresh said, I have it. The gallows. 
says, no Jew has ever been saved from the gallows. You build a gallows, and then once we get Haman on the once we get Mordechai on the gallows, then we're finished. Now, interestingly, this logic was employed by another arch enemy of ours many centuries earlier. Who was that? The Pharaoh. The Pharaoh said, How am I going to hurt the Jewish people? How am I going to hurt the Hebrews? How am I going to get rid of their children? He said, If I use fire, Abraham was safe from fire. Use military might, Abraham was safe from military might. He said, Ah, I know. He said that God promised he would never bring a flood again. So the flood to be a punishment. So we know Mida connected Mida. There's always a measure against a measure. And actually, in the beginning of Pasha's Yisro, it says, it says Asha Zoduba, Asha Zodu, which they were treacherous against the Jewish people. So one of the interpretations is that in the pot that they cooked, they were cooked. Meaning they threw the babies into the river. And where did the Egyptian army drown? In the Red Sea. But so what was Pharaoh's mistake? He said, God won't bring a flood. He didn't. Instead, he brought the Egyptians into the water. You really can't live with God. Like, these things don't work. <laughs> so the Pharaoh made a whole calculation how he's going to be able to get the Jews and how water would be the best option. Zeresh is a very smart lady. Very smart, but not smart enough. Because you can't, you can't outsmart Hashem al Israel. She said, a gallows. This is the thing to do. Put Mordechai at a gallows. And that's what's going to, and that's exactly what Haman in the end is going to be planning. So, so Haman, as he, he comes to speak to these people who love him, who care about him, who are worried about him, and who have his best interests, so to speak, at heart, Haman is certain that in doing so, he's going to be able to find a solution to his problem. Now, Malbum points out that this, this, uh, the, the problem that Haman had was it was what we call in English an infradig. It was beneath his dignity. So earlier it said that he was that he was uh, that he was filled earlier with anger. So he filled anger at the Jewish people. The genocide of a nation, that's a great accomplishment. And many people have tried to uh, eradicate races, destroy nations. That's not beneath Haman. But here the Pasuk changes. It says, about an individual. And that's why he said, this is like, that doesn't even, in Yiddish we say, it's It's like, you're a big, mighty, powerful guy. You care about one little person? That's you devote yourself to, the, to eliminating one person? Like, how does he even get into the picture? And because he had this anger, that's why he had to control himself. And so, he came, he came to, to the people and he said, I know that this is something which is, it's heder hakovoid. It's it's not according to my dignity. I'm such a powerful man, and I'm sitting and wrestling with, with little Mordechai. <laughs> he how did he become even on a, my my equal, a, a lowly Jew, in his in his eyes? The way we spoke about the Jews, how how did I do this? According to Haman's position, his greatness, his dignity, even look at Mordechai. And that's why he's speaking. So what is it? And that and that's why he begins his little speech to the people. What does he say? He talks about his great wealth. And he talks about Rav Bonov, how many children he has. Who is he telling this to? He's telling it to the people who know it. Why is he telling this to them? How he was raised above all the other ministers. What, Haman didn't speak to his family? Nobody knew about this? Why is he telling them this? So the Malbun says, simple. He explains, do you, understand, do you understand my problem here, he says? Do you understand my issue here? Like, look how big I am, and I'm going to fight with this little Jew? It doesn't, it doesn't add up. 
This is my issue. Because he has the power to, to kill Mordecai. Isn't that the king's decision? Well, the, you're right. It, ultimately, life and death was in the king's hand. He didn't really have the power. If he had the power, he would have done it. That's why the Malbim says, what was his plan? His plan was to go run back to the king and get the king to kill him. The one thing Haman couldn't do on his own was, was kill people. Uh, that was in the hands of the king. The king, the, in fact, the halachic definition of a real melech, a real king, is that hachayim v'hamav is when, the, when Queen Elizabeth was first uh, appointed in London, there was a Hasidic Rebbe, a name we're not going to mention, who was in London at the time. And he recited the blessing that one recites over a king. And he was ridiculed because she's not really a queen. She doesn't really have powers. She's a, she's a head of state. She has like an official position. But what is a king? What's the definition of a king in halacha? The definition is hachayim v'hamavis biyadeh. Life and death in their hands. So they try to defend him, and they said that in some of the Caribbean islands that were under British rule, the king could commute, the queen could commute a death sentence. Right? I forgot which one of the one of the, which was one of the islands under British rule. So therefore, since one of the islands under British rule, oh really? Oh, so in Jamaica, so she she could commute. Now it's a stretch. Really, you can't make a bracha over her. She's not, <laughs> nothing personal, but it's not, it's, not, it's not really a king. What's really a king? The king, that's the life and death in the hand. So Haman wasn't a king. He's a very powerful politician. He got Ahasuerus to agree to decree genocide against the Jewish people, but he couldn't do it by himself. And so he needed the king to do this. And that's why the Malbim said his plan was to run right back to the king and say, he's a guy, we got to kill him. And then he was afraid. What if the king would say no? Then he looks at Egel over his face. He's like a fool. How's that going to work? So that's why he controlled himself. He said, first I'm going to go home. I've got to speak this over with the people who I love, who care about me. And when I speak it over with the people who care about me, they'll give me advice. Then I'll figure out how to go back to the king. And what does Zeresh tell him? She goes through this whole thing. He says, you make a big gallows. And Haman, in the middle of the night, went to see the king. Haman had this big party in his house, and they party till who knows when, middle of the night. Right? Because the feast ended, I don't know, 9, 10 o'clock at night? It was, 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 was a feast in the evening. Esther came in the afternoon. The feast was in the evening. And then in the evening he went home until he spoke to everybody, until they had this whole idea. And they had to build the gallows. And then they finished building the gallows, 50 cubits in the air, and there's much to talk about that. And then Haman comes to go and see the king at 2 o'clock in the morning. And his mazel, the king is up. His not mazel, the king has some very different ideas on his mind. It doesn't work at all. But that was Haman's plan. Haman's plan was to build, they told him, let's build the gallows, have everything in place, and then you'll go and you'll tell the king, here's what we need to do. The king will give you permission. Mordechai won't see tomorrow morning. We're hanging down in the middle of the night, and that's it. You're done with Mordechai, and the rest of the Jews will take care of next year. This was Haman's plan. So in, in Haman's plan, the problem that he had was, was is that he's such an important guy. I'm so big, I'm so powerful, I'm so important. How could, how could I get my hands dirty with something this small? That's why he's telling them about, ostensibly, what they know already. That's, that's, that's what Pasuket Aleph is like. He goes, he recounts everything. The Vilna Gaon explains it like this. He says, when a person extreme, experiences extremes, like he's very, very happy, very satisfied, feeling really good about himself, and then he feels a terrible low, terrible pain. He said, this, this could destroy a person. 
can crack you up. It can, it can make you die of a broken heart. The extreme emotions is actually unhealthy. So Haman was trying to heal himself. This is what we call self-psychotherapy. He's a pretty smart guy. He was therapizing himself. <laughs> he came and he figured, if I talk about all these things, if I recount how wonderful my life is, I'm going to be able to feel a little better. And, and, and he, so he starts talking about how, how lucky he is, how great he is, how much money he has, how big his family is, how he has our, all these things. That's why he's telling them. He, he himself is telling them all of these things. And, 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 and really, he's already succeeded. He's already succeeded. He's done everything that he has to possibly do. And he goes on to say that besides everything I succeeded till today, today was the zenith of my career. Today, I reached the apogee. Because you know what happened today? Verse 12, The queen did not bring together with the king Just me. Nobody else. You think it's just today? Tomorrow we're having even a bigger meal, a fancier meal, a wonderful meal. Why would it be more wonderful tomorrow? So the Bamloyers brings down the Mepharshim say, today Esther didn't eat. She wasn't comfortable yet. But tomorrow she's going to eat also. So the queen, today the king dined with me. Tomorrow the king and the queen are going to be dining with me. You know how big I am? You know how powerful I am? You know how, you know how amazing life is for me? So he goes, recounts all these things and talks about how he's, he is a man who has seen the top. He's reached the very, very zenith of what he could ever imagine. And despite all of this, the verse 13, is worthless to me. When I see that Jew, Mordechai Yehudi, I see him, all my joy, all my happiness, all my satisfaction, all my career success, everything is meaningless. This is a demented guy. He's like, he's obsessive. I'm a sugar man. He, he, he's, he's bothered by like, like this, for him, a speck. One little Mordechai, ignore him. Anyway, in a year he's dead. All your Jews are dead. You're getting rid of all your Jewish problem. But this is not a logical thing. This is not rhyme and reason. This, is a, this man was driven insane with his anti-Semitism. And because of his insane hatred of the Jewish people, ultimately, that is what saves us, so to speak. Through this, Hashem works out the salvation of Am Yisrael. This is similar to Hitler, Yomach Shemot. In the final days of the war, what should he have been doing? If he was normal. If he was, if he was doing the rational thing, he would have put all his efforts into the war. Instead, he put enormous amount of efforts into genocide of Jews. Had Hitler spent his time defending himself, he would have delayed his thing. He said, I'm going to take care of Hungarian Jews in a few months. Let me first turn the war, tide of the war around. Had he devoted all of his troops and all his energy to the war, instead of to killing us, who knows what the end would have been. He could have won the war, and then it would be even too scary to think. He lost the war, in part, in, 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 in a simple rhyme and reason because he diverted efforts elsewhere because, because his fanatical, maniacal hatred for the Jewish people was something that eclipsed all else. He's not the first one. Haman is the same exact way. You'd think, just relax, bide your time. In a year, Mordechai is gone, all his people are gone. But Haman couldn't take it. He couldn't wait one more day that Mordechai should continue to sit over there. It's interesting to note that uh, when we speak about uh, Rav Bonov, let's take a look at it in Rashi. Rashi says, It's not worth. 
chosh. He said, I don't pay any attention. All this honor, I pay no attention to it. It, just mean, it means nothing to me. All my success is, is gone. The moment I see Mardachai, it all disappears. Now, it's interesting that Haman doesn't even mention that, that Mardachai didn't bow to him. He doesn't even mention that Mardachai didn't move or wasn't, didn't tremble or wasn't afraid. What does he say? He just says, I see Mardachai. I see Mordechai sitting Yeshua Melech. In other words, his, the fact that a Jew sits there, that's the worst. He can't, that's what he really couldn't take. It was almost a pretext. He doesn't bow to me. Why isn't he even afraid of me? That was pretextual. That was, that's, that's after the fact. What really drove Haman insane is to see a Jew sitting over there. A Jew should be successful. A Jew should have power. A Jew should be in a position of prominence and importance. This drove him totally crazy. And that disturbed Haman's position. If Mordechai was there, Haman couldn't be satisfied. He couldn't be happy. His position didn't mean anything. Bechol Ace. What's Bechol Ace? Why? Because this sounds so insane. Why would it bother him? If you want to say that, that, that Mordechai didn't bow, he says, Bechol Ace at any time. It's, it's not when I pass out. Any time. I see him sitting there. Every time I see him, it drives me crazy. So the Gemara Megillah tells us that Haman was actually once, many, many years earlier, had been in a situation where he was a commander in Ahasuerus' army. And Mordechai was also a commander in this army. It's actually an earlier army, Darius' army. And they were sent off into a battle and, and things didn't go well and they were alone in the desert. And Mordechai had water and Haman didn't. And Haman was desperate to have Mordechai's water. Mordechai said, what are you going to pay me for it? And Mordechai got Haman to agree that he would be his slave. And they wrote it on the bottom of a shoe. They wrote it with any paper. The contract was written on the sole of Mordechai's shoe. That Haman said, I'm your slave. I'm indebted to you forever. Just give me some, some drink. And right after that happened, all of a sudden, they met other people. He found water. It was too late. So what Haman, when Haman used to walk by, Mordechai would show him the sign, which maybe means showing him the sole of his feet. Just it's a reminder. So... This is just an interesting thing. Do you know that showing somebody the bottom of your feet in the Arab world is considered to be a great insult? Disrespect. Great disrespect. So if you remember when they pulled down the statues of Saddam Hussein, remember the images then, they were taking their sandals and smacking it with their, with their sandals, right? And people noted that a certain president who does not like Israel made his first phone call from the Oval Office to the mass murder Holocaust denier, not Ahmadinejad, Abbas, his blood brother. He did it with his, he released the official White House picture, showed his feet on the table. It's a strange way to release your first picture sitting in the Oval Office, but there was a subtle message there. The subtle message was, I think, I think it was first call was to Abbas, and then when he spoke to Netanyahu the first time, that was the picture they released. I think that was the puzzle they put together. These are subtle messages, you know. So if that picture hits the Arab street, you see, ah, the president disrespects. Right? Now, of course, there are those who argue that uh, this is uh, fanciful imagination and uh, conspiracy theory. I don't, my personal opinion is not. You don't have to take that. That's, 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 not, that's not Torah. <laughs> that's, that's just my personal opinion. But at any rate, th- it is true that the bottom of the sewing, the bottom of the feet is a, a sign of an insult. And who knows if it's not back to them. That's not the origin of it. So Haman was being reminded constantly that you're like, you're like my slave. So he saw, even just seeing Mordechai made him feel that his career was in danger. Because if 
he's a slave, then he owns everything. Now Haman says, Haman uh, says that he has many, many children. Right? I'll talk about this in a minute. How many children does he have? Let's so Rashi says, he was showing him constantly this, this uh, bill of sale where he sold himself over in slavery because he didn't have any sustenance. When Marduch and Haman were selected to lead a particular battle. So these guys had known each other for a very long time. Haman and Marduch's relationship did not begin now in the time of Purim. This is a relationship that was many decades old. And Haman was probably an old anti-Semite who couldn't stand the fact that he had to work with a Jew. They hated Mordechai all along. Now, Ibn Ezra says that the idea of trying to emphasize all of his children, it's like he's telling his wife how many children she has. Like, <laughs> the whole thing sounds like so strange, right? So he just wanted to, Ibn Ezra says he wanted to share with them his good fortune. Mazali Hatayv. And I have so much wealth. And I have such a great family. And I have so many children. But he wanted to emphasize them to understand how important this is to him. Despite all these things I have, Mordechai is there. As long as Mordechai is there, I can't enjoy all these things. So really, this is a problem. Don't tell me, forget about it. I can't forget about this. I need to deal with it. It's getting in the way of everything. How many children did he have? So you take a look at the Gemara. The Gemara opinions in opinion. Rav said he had 30 children. It's not so hard to imagine. Bin Laden had 25 children. Right? And he was snuffed out in the middle of his career. So, so uh, you know, multiple wives, 30 children. That's not so unusual. But why did, what do you hear about 10 children were hung? So he says, well, 10 were hung. 10 were, were, were died. And 10, he says, became paupers. They, were, they went around begging. They were, became, became beggars. Okay. Rabbanan say, no, 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 no. He had more than that. He had 80 children. 10 were hung, but 70 paupers he produced. 70 of them were now begging. Now hold on to your chair. Rami Bar says he had 208 children. <laughs> a very busy man. How do we know? Because it says, the Roiv, the Roiv Bonov, Vav is 6, Reish is 200, and Bez is 2. The Roiv Bonov is the Gematria, Reish Ches, 208. And how many wives? How many wives? Oh, uh, many wives. <laughs> Clearly, many, many wives to produce that, that amount of children. We're going to talk more about this because next week we'll fill in the details of Haman's family and we start talking about how Zeresh advises him and what Zeresh says to him. We're going to give, uh, next week, we'll start off with the background on Haman's family. We'll give, give, give you some of the details of what that means and what the deeper message is of different amounts of children. But here's the bottom line. Haman is a person who is obsessed. He's obsessed with Mordechai, obsessed with Mordechai's existence drives him insane. Like Amalek. Like Amalek. Although there, Rashi does introduce a little bit of rationale here that he felt always he was going to be a slave. And he felt everything he owned were ultimately owned by Mordechai. But, but yeah, this is like a neurosis. And anti-Semitism is not a logical thing. It never has been. It never does make sense. So therefore, these notions of trying to explain anti-Semitism are patently ridiculous. So why is there anti-Semitism? It's, it's a neurosis. It's, it's a sick, pernicious, demented mental state that has afflicted large swaths of the human population ever since when. It's not our job to explain it. It's their job to deal with it. They're the ones who have this issue. I was once sitting with a group of uh, Catholic kids, actually in this room. 
many years ago, just when that movie called The Passion came out. So one of the kids said to me, did you see the movie? I said, no. Why don't you watch our movie? I said, I don't watch any movies. I don't have time. So they said, why, why did you guys kill Jesus? I'm like, really? Like, like, as <laughs> it's like you know, it's fabricated. In the movie itself, it's 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 like they put like apparently I didn't see the movie, but they they dressed up Polish-looking Jews, you know, Jews with with talisim. The whole thing is anti-Semitism. It's not it's not it's not, an, it's not an accurate portrayal of anything. So another kid goes, well, why does everybody hate you? I go, oh, really? What you want to know why everybody hates me? Why don't you ask yourself why you have a problem? You have the issue. Well, if everybody hates you, there must be something wrong with you. So I said, that's like saying to the beautiful woman, you're raped because you're beautiful. The rapist has the issue. You're a rapist. Look in the mirror and deal with your illness. Deal with your sickness. The teacher was turning purple like in, the, in the back. So then um, um, this, this kid says, um, well, why did you guys occupy Palestine? I go, let me tell you something interesting. In the 1930s, there was graffiti all over Europe that said, Jews go home to Palestine. I said, now... In, 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 in Israel, in the, in the territories that the Arabs took or occupied, they wrote, Jews go home to Poland. I said, so where exactly would you like us to go? Because you wanted us to go to Israel, or in Israel you want us to go, where, where do you want us to go? So one kid goes, well, why don't you guys go to outer space? Because there's no room for you on this planet. I said, young boys and girls, this conversation is over. You guys have some serious issues, and your teacher has to deal with these problems. I will no longer speak to you. You're a bunch of raving anti-Semites, and I'm going to bid you a good day. And I walked out. I left him here. So the teacher came shaking, like red-faced. I, don't, I, can't, I can't understand what happened. I feel horrible. I'm, please forgive me. It's not about me forgiving you. I said, you have an issue. Deal with your issue. This is totally inappropriate. This is, I, I, it, it, it's no, no words I could, I could use, but will underscore the ugliness of what I just saw. Yeah, I'm going to deal with it when... But unfortunately, does that make any sense? <laughs> this is like not, I'm not talking about 1930. It was like, I don't remember when that movie came out. It was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. It's right here, right here in Canada. Yeah, Mel Gibson, Gibson anti Semite. So he inflamed anti Semitic passions, and it is a not a rational thing. And we could see this from the arch anti Semite example in the Bible, who is Haman, that he is totally irrational. All his thrills, all his happiness, all his joy, all his success is worthless, meaningless, as long as the Jew still exists. As long as the Jew is still around, as long as the Jew still enjoys some kind of success, nowhere near his success, in no way get... Enough. Haman cannot deal with it, can't wait another moment, and ultimately it is this maniacal, obsessive hatred which is going to undo everything, destroying Haman and saving the Jews. They will self-destruct. <laughs> that's, 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 what, that's what happens in the end. That's what happened historically. Unfortunately, time and again, we have paid a very heavy price. So hopefully this will be only history for the, on the go forward. We'll only be reading about what the Abdesamites want to do. Of course, in the story of Purim, Purim is great v'nahapach. Everything turns the other way around. And we hope and pray that Abir Hashem, in our time, there'll be the greatest v'nahapachu, a transformation of reality that will culminate very, very soon with the coming of Mashiach. B'mheira will be Amenu. Amen. Amen. Thank you.